Well, I have the honor and privilege of wrapping up our series in the book of John called No Middle Ground. And I hope you are ready to buckle in because we're about to do chapters 18, 19, and 20. And for extra credit, you get to do 21 on your own later today. All right, so I'm only doing three full chapters. We're going to be here for a little while, so just get cozy. Hope you got your coffee. No, I'm just kidding. We are going to fly really fast. We're going to start like 30,000 feet, run through these chapters, but then we're going to hit the ground level and look at one person in particular in this passage that I think we need to really examine what's going on in his life so that we are challenged to respond differently. So the word challenge to live a life that says Jesus truly is the king. And so to orient us, we're going to start at the end of chapter 20, and then we're going to work our way back from 18 through 20. Sound good? Y'all with me? All right. Who's ready for the word of God? All right. Let's go. All right. Here we Yeah. Come on. Now in chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, it says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That you may believe in Jesus that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that you may have eternal life. John, the writer of this book, from chapter one all the way to the very end, this is the sole purpose of the book, that you may know and that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And in doing so, you may have life. And what he's talking about is that life everlasting, that abundant life that he mentioned in John 10, 10, full, everlasting, abundant life. This is what our hearts long for, to truly be alive and it is only found when we believe and when we trust in Jesus Christ and so as we fly through this book I want you to have that kind of in the back of your mind do I believe that Jesus is the Christ do I truly believe that he is the Christ that's what I want us to wrestle with today. So starting in chapter 18, we're just going to kind of give a quick summary, draw out a few little uh, things in there that I, I think would be interesting for us to wrestle with a little bit. But in chapter 18, it picks up with where Pastor Joel left us off last week. John 17, Jesus is with his disciples at the Last Supper. He prays Jesus' prayer, that high priestly prayer, where he calls out for God's glory and our Oh, listen, y'all, I know y'all had some turkey, but how many of y'all were at church last week? God's glory and our unity. There, all right, all right. That turkey, like whatever that little chemical, y'all woke up. Are y'all with me? All right. What I can't remember what that's called. Whatever that thing is, it makes you... All right. He prays that prayer for God's glory and our unity. And he moves forward knowing what's about to take place. The passion narrative that in Latin is the suffering of Christ is what's about to take place in the next few chapters. Walking all the way from the Garden of Gethsemane to the death of Jesus on the cross and ultimately his resurrection. And there is an empty tomb in chapter 20. And so as we walk forward, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and there he is betrayed by Judas, one of his disciples, one of the people that would follow him. Judas, like many of us, uh, we choose things that are contrary to, to following after Jesus. He chose money and greed, and in doing so, other uh, gospel accounts say that he regretted it. He tried to give the money back, but it did not change the fact that he did betray Jesus. But how he responded to the gospel and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ is a different story, and you can find that in some other gospel accounts. 
So he betrays him. And what's interesting in this passage is Peter goes on to defend Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, no, Jesus, you can't be taken. And he pulls out a sword and he cuts the ear off of one of the men coming to arrest Jesus. So Peter boldly tries to defend Jesus Christ and says, no, you can't go with them. And Jesus says, stop, Peter, picks up the ear of the man and puts it back on like it was a Lego piece. Like, how crazy is that? This is what Jesus knows. I have to go to the cross, and Peter, you can't stand in the way of it, but I want you to know what's about to happen. And some of you know, if you've been around church and you know the story a little bit, that bold declaration of Peter to defend Jesus is gonna be flipped over again in a few moments. He makes some mistakes a little bit. But I want us to realize that Jesus is always trying to show love and mercy. Jesus is always trying to repair things and restore things in the lives of the people around him. This is why he came, that they would believe and know that he is the son of God. And could you imagine that person who arrests Jesus and later sees the cross and then hears about the empty tomb and think, oh my goodness, the son of God healed me. The son of God fixed me so that he would, might believe. And I don't know, we don't know what happened to that person, but could you imagine that moment in his life when it begins to click? I, th- I think I was just with God himself, the son of God, Jesus Christ. And it goes on in 18, uh, verses 12 through 27. And this is where I told you Peter makes some mistakes. He goes with, uh, follows closely after Jesus as they go to the high priest's house where Jesus is put on an illegal trial in front of the chief priests, the Jewish leaders at that time. And he's being, uh, there's essentially an inquisition of who he is and what he is and trying to figure out how to remove Jesus from the equation because he is causing turmoil in their cultural norms. And Peter is in the courtyard and he's listening into these moments. And it's in that space in chapter 18 where Peter denies Jesus. And we know from other gospel accounts that he denies him three times. And he call, and the, uh, there's prophesied by Jesus that you will deny me, Peter. And he's like, no, I won't. But it came to pass. I want you to think about this for a minute. I know many of you in this room, you are, you are Jesus followers, you're transformed followers of him and, and you seek to glorify him in your life. But how many of you, since you've come to know Jesus, have made mistakes? You have sinned against God. You have fallen. And I think that's one of the misnomers that we hear in our culture is that when you believe in Jesus, everything's automatically fixed. Guys, I want us to understand that yes, we can be saved and have eternal life in Jesus Christ, but that doesn't remove the temptation and the presence of sin all around us that we are, have the opportunity to stumble into. And so I want us to realize it's how we respond How we respond to who Jesus is is what determines if we are truly followers of Jesus and that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And you can read about that in John chapter 21, a little little breadcrumb there for you to see how Peter responds to him. But I do want you to understand that you may stumble when you choose to follow Jesus. You may have made that commitment, but you may have made some mistakes. And I'm here to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, friends, young people in the room, kids in in the house, There is grace upon grace upon grace. Jesus' death on the cross, taking all of our sins, were past, present, and future sins that we would ultimately make. And Jesus knew them, and yet he chose to love Peter and invite him into a relationship with him. So I just want to call that out for us as just a reminder. We don't expect you to have it all together. We don't expect you to be perfect 
But we do invite you to respond to Jesus, to believe that he is the son of God, that you may have life in him. All right, so we're going to keep moving. In 1828 through 40, Jesus then goes before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is the Roman governor over this area. It's Roman oppression, but yet they somehow still allow parts of the Jewish culture to maintain. It's how they kept the Roman peace. There is oppression, there's taxation, there's all sorts of other atrocities, atrocities that happen to the Jewish people and all across the world. This is a part of the Roman way that they would uh, kind of put this heavy pressure on cultures. That's why there's so much turmoil happening in the life and, and and this biblical narrative because of this Roman oppression. Pilate was known to be a really, just a horrendous ruler. Like he was, he was supposed to be quick-tempered is what some of the historians say, that he was pretty brutal in his actions towards other people. Um, and in fact, later on, he will actually be removed from power because of his brutality, which is why, just a little, little uh, Easter egg for you, just kind of teeing it up, is why this next interaction that we're gonna talk about later is a little interesting because knowing that he's this strong Roman person and he's known to be brutal, but yet his interactions with Jesus, are there's something different there. So I'm just gonna lay that up there and then we'll walk towards it here in a few moments. John 19, he has these conversations and, and ultimately what's gonna happen is uh, Jesus is gonna be led towards the cross. Uh, chapter 19, verses 17 through 27, Jesus is taken to be crucified. He is nailed to a Roman cross. This is an execution tool that was used countless times over, and its purpose was not just the death of the individual, but it was the humiliation of the people in order to maintain oppression of the people. So they would put anyone that they knew that they needed to uh, make an example of on a cross, crucify them so that they would be humiliated and so that there wouldn't be any other uh, issues. They'd be like, oh, I don't want what happened to that guy. And so they would hopefully try to quiet any uh, rebellion or angst that the people may have. It was a form of humiliation. And when I think about it, this passage that I I was kind of praying and preparing for this, it reminded me of Philippians 2. Paul writes to the church, and he's talking about Jesus, and he's encouraging us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to walk after Jesus. But he says this in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, poured himself out by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, I want you to key in on this, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. This is what Jesus knew all along from the moment the word became flesh. Jesus was walking towards this point of death, death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself, allowed himself to be utterly humiliated, knelt to a cross, naked, mocked, spit upon, just completely abused in every sense of the term and word. Because this was the way God was going to bring his people back home. This is the way Jesus knew he had to walk in order to find life. Now, I want us to read this next part together. I want you to go to John chapter 19, verse 28. Again, we're kind of moving through this real quick. There's so much in here. You're going to need to take some time in your small groups with your family, process this. But I want us to kind of see a few things. In verse 19, chapter 19, verse 28, it says this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it out to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. We sang about it in the song that Pastor Nathan and the team led us with. 
mocked and scorned. Jesus was beaten and he was laid on this cross and I don't want us to run past the gravity that God himself died for you and for me. That God himself humbled himself, got on a cross so you didn't have to. So that you didn't have to be humiliated. So that you didn't have to die in your sins and have live a life separated apart from God forever. And it's interesting to think about the word of God that became flesh. He poured himself out on the cross. The word became flesh to pour himself out on the cross. The very same Jesus who in John chapter four talked to the woman at the well and he asked her for a drink of water. Do you remember this? This was a long time ago when we started this series. That That was a long time ago. He asked her for a drink, and she says, but you don't have a bucket you know, to pull water up with. How are you gonna get this water? And, and he's talking to this woman, and he ultimately says to her, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask him for a drink, and you would thirst no more. If you knew who you were talking to, you would thirst no more. The one who says of himself, if you know me and you follow me, you will be ultimately satisfied You will have life, life abundant, the everlasting life. He's saying if you walk and you engage with me in relationship, you will be satisfied. And here on the cross, the one who is the source of all life, the one who would ultimately satisfy, he cries out, I thirst. Jesus has poured himself out. And it is finished. It is finished. It is done. There is a period on the end of that sentence. It is done. It's so done and it's final because in 19, chapter 19, 31 through 42, the Roman guards put a spear through his side and from that moment, blood and water flowed. Again, a reminder of the Jesus who performed these miracles so that we would believe that he is the son of God. The one who turned water into wine was now pierced and blood and water flowed. Blood and water flowed, showing ultimately his heart and all the pressures that were applied to him turned into this unique experience where blood and water flowed out of him when he was pierced. The one who turned water into wine was pierced. Blood and water flowed. He gave everything, every ounce of his life to pay for the sins of the world, to pay for my sins, my sins, pay for your sins, and to nail them to that cross. And he was buried in that chapter. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And then notice there's a man in that part of chapter 19 named Nicodemus. And if you remember from John chapter three, Nicodemus is the one coming to Jesus saying, how, how, am I, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, you must be born again. And he's like, how am I supposed to do that? What does that even mean? And he walks away and we're kind of left with this cliffhanger in the story of like, so what did Nicodemus do? If what I understand of the scriptures is true, then that seems to me that Nicodemus chose to follow Jesus. 
that Nicodemus helps Joseph take Jesus off the cross and place him in another man's tomb. But we know what happens in chapter 20, that the tomb is empty, the stone is rolled away, and Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene and Peter, and it says the other disciple, which is just a total fun moment. It says Peter and the other disciple, and I think it's John. I, I really do, as I was kind of reading said it. I think the other disciple in chapter 20, is he, and he says, and the other disciple beat him there. So there's always a little competition. So John beat Peter to the, to the tomb. He's faster. Way to go, John. We appreciate you marking that in history and time in the Bible for a long time, that you are faster than Peter. Well done, John. And he gets there, and the tomb is empty, and then in chapter 20, Jesus appears to other disciples, and he shows up, and he talks to Thomas, who says, unless I see the scars and the holes in his hand, and he shows up again, time and time again, to the disciples to show them that Jesus is alive, that he is risen, and the tomb is empty. Here's what I want us to understand today. That there is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. You either believe that Jesus is the Christ or you don't. And I, and I told you we're going to fly through those chapters, 18, 19, 20. Here's what I do. I want us to kind of take it from that 30,000 feet and I want us to get to ground level. And I want us to look at a particular person. I don't want us to look at the Pharisees or the Jewish leaders because they openly rejected Jesus. They're the ones who are calling out, crucify him, crucify him. They're the ones who have had an illegal trial and just forsaken all of their laws in order to try to remove Jesus under the guise of some religion, of a religiosity, if you will. Peter, yes, he is a follower of Jesus. He made some mistakes. He denied Jesus Christ. But we know from history that he began to lead the church. He's the one who preached the first sermon, declaring the gospel. He is the one who says, yeah, I'm the one who denied Jesus Christ. It is written down, and we talk about it every Easter, and we talk about the mistakes of Peter. But yet, this is our story as well, that when we make mistakes, we understand the grace that Jesus has poured out on our lives, and we get to follow him accordingly. So we're not going to talk about Peter, we're not going to talk about the Pharisees, but I want us to talk about Pontius Pilate. Again, there is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. Pilate seemed, from what I can understand of the scriptures, to try to live in the middle ground. And I want you to understand today, when you try to play the middle ground, you will always lose. You will always lose when you try to play the middle ground. In 1837 through 38, we're going to zoom in on the story. It says, Pilate said to him, talking to Jesus in this trial, so are you a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, right? The good shepherd, his sheep hear his voice and they follow and Pilate said to him, what is truth? This brutal man begins to look at Jesus and have a conversation, and he's like, huh, what is, what is truth? What is happening? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jewish people and told them, I find no guilt in him. Well, of course he can't find guilt in him. He's Jesus. He is perfect. There is no guilt that could ever be found in Jesus. He is God, a very God, the Son of God, perfect in all of his ways, holy, blameless, perfect. The reality is this. Can you just imagine for a moment, Pilate is staring into the face of God. He is literally looking into the light of the world. He is standing before the bread of life. The way, the truth, and the life is right in front of him. And he's looking at Jesus and he's having to wrestle with this, tr this reality. 
how will I respond to Jesus? How will I respond to Jesus? And I've heard one writer say this, and and I think it's interesting to consider Pilate, to almost in a way put ourselves in his shoes for a moment. And this writer says, in Jesus we see what man is and how far we have fallen. And in him we see what God is and how far we may rise. And I wonder for a moment, if we were to put ourselves in the shoes of Pilate, and Jesus is literally standing before us, the way, the truth, and the life, and he asks that question, what is truth? And I wonder if Jesus just kind of smirked at him. I'm standing right here. And when we begin to look at truth, and we begin to look in the light of the world, it begins to expose the things in our lives, the dark parts of our heart, the things where we would choose self, where we would choose our sin, and we would choose our flesh. Jesus begins to expose that in the life of Pilate. This man who is brutal is now seems to, somehow there's a softer side of him. Why? Because the light is exposing the darkness. Pilate then goes on. He's trying to find a way to stand in the middle of the ground. And he calls to this uh, custom they would have at Passover where they would release a prisoner. So Pilate trying to stand in middle ground knowing there's something different about Jesus, but he doesn't want to uh, give in and give way to the cultural norms around him or the, the political pressures around him. He says, okay, okay, okay. What if I release this prisoner who's a known murderer and a thief? Uh, you have this guy or Jesus who's not murdered anybody. And to, to my knowledge, I find no guilt in him. Which would you choose? And all of the people choose Barabbas. Hey, let's let the murderer go free, but let's let the guiltless guy hang on a cross. Pilate's trying to stand in the middle of that. And he's like, okay, that didn't work the way I thought it was going to. I thought they would have picked Jesus and we would have killed Barabbas and everybody would have gone home and had a good day, right? Everyone has gone about their business. But in, uh, so he has to go back. He's thinking again, what am I going to do? How do I land in the middle ground to still stay this Roman governor? But yet I've got to wrestle with this reality of who is Jesus and what do I do with him? So it picks up in chapter 19, verses four through 10. And Pilate went out again and said to him, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns that his soldiers had smashed into his head and a purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and you crucify him for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, we have a law. According to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. He's always been the son of God. He didn't make himself. He has always been the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And in verse 11, he says, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has a greater sin. And that's speaking about Judas and his betrayal is what that, that verse is talking about. Pilate is like, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? 
They are saying he's the son of God and now I'm having to sit in this place of judgment. Do I dare crucify the son of God? And it said, did you see it in the passage? When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, meaning he was afraid. He had this awe, this reverence, this who is this man Jesus from his first encounter. Now we have a second encounter and he's like, who are you? Where are you from? I wanna ask us this question. Do we understand the reality and the gravity that Jesus is the king? Because Pilate and his men, in order to try to satisfy the cultural uh, call of, around them and the, the cultural uh, pressures that were happening to him, they mock Jesus, place a crown of thorns on his head and a robe over him, pretending him, for him to be a king, and they beat him. Are we so flippant as those Roman soldiers and as Pontius Pilate to try to stand in the middle of the ground to say, yeah, yeah, he's a king, but then our lives show something completely different? Yeah, 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 Jesus is the king, but... I'm really not following him. Yeah, 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 he's the king, but I want us to realize the reality and the gravity that Jesus truly is king. And if so, it's his will and it's his way for God's glory and our what? Our unity. His will for his way for God's glory and our unity because he's the king. We are not the kings. We are not the queens. We are not the ones in charge but if we try to stand in the middle ground, we're going to lose every time like Pilate did. Let's not be flippant with the truth that Jesus is the king. Let us not be found flippant before the king. In chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, or in Spickup uh, verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him after this encounter. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And you heard the word of God read earlier. It's and then in this moment, all the cultural pressures mount and Pilate says, fine, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And in verse 16, he delivered him over to be crucified. He delivered him over to be crucified. All of the pressures of the culture, all of the noise calling him to do a certain thing when yet the very truth is in front of him. The living God is standing in front of him. The light of the world is literally right there with him. And yet the call of the crowd changed everything. It reminds me of a quote from a missionary, Jim Elliott. It says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Pilate tried to play the middle ground. And in doing so, he lost everything. Because in a few short years, that power that he thought he would maintain as he gave into the cultural pressures around him, he ends up losing. And some historian says that even the Caesar, when he came back to Rome, actually forced him to commit suicide because of his failures in leadership. Because his failures of what happened in his governing role. The thing he thought he could hang on to, he actually loses in giving into the cultural pressures. And yet he lost that very moment, that encounter with Jesus. And so I want to invite you today to respond to Jesus. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. You've heard through the writer John and through our testimonies here of lives transformed for God so loved. The reality that Jesus is the Christ. 
He is the son of the living God. These eyewitnesses declare this to be true. And God has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. And it's there that Jesus invites us in to respond. In order for us to walk in a relationship with God, there had to be a sacrifice because the scriptures are clear for the wages of sin is death. There can be no holy God with sin around. There had to be some sort of payment and Jesus took that payment on the cross. He was the perfect sacrifice. We have to understand that the perfect life that Jesus lived qualified him to become the perfect sacrifice. The perfect life became the perfect sacrifice for you and for me dying on the cross so you didn't have to. And in doing so, the way, the truth, and the life, the good shepherd opened a door that says, come, come. All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is believe. You don't have to earn it. Good news, ain't nothing y'all can do to earn it. But he stands and says, come. Would you believe that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice? We must answer this. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? That he is the son of God? And the invitation is that you may have life. Because here's what we know. Here's what we declare. That there is no middle ground with death and life. You are either alive or you're dead. There is no half dead and there is no half alive. You are either alive or you are dead. And Jesus proved it to us because he died. Blood and water flowed and he was placed in a tomb. But yet that tomb did not hold him. We know this to be true. That the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. There's no middle ground, friends. And so I invite you to believe, to make a choice. Maybe some of you have made that choice and I want to invite you. How are you going to proclaim this? How are you going to show that your life stands not in the middle ground, but as a passionate, transformed follower of Jesus who passionately responds to God, who is rooted in prayer in the Bible, who is then equipping other disciples? You could take one of these, a Gospel of John, they're all out in the gathering space. Who are you going to walk through the Gospel of John? Because you've now been equipped with the Word of God to walk through every chapter and to tell people the truth so that they might believe in Him and in so have life. So I invite you. I'm going to be standing over here, and if there's like an elder or any of our deacons, uh, Reverend Brent, my man Brent in the blue shirt, why don't you just stand over there? And if you want someone to pray with you, you don't know what it means to follow after Jesus, you can come talk to us. You can head to our prayer room right over here, talk to some folks with the green lanyard. We want to help introduce you to Jesus so that you may have life. So God, we love you. God, you are gracious. Your love makes no sense in some ways, but yet, God, it is the best gift that you and I could ever, that we could ever receive. So God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. May we respond to believe and to trust that you, Jesus, are the Son of God. For your glory, God, 